Alright, so my name is Melanie and I'm an addict. Hey, Melanie. Uh, my sobriety date is January 9th, 2020, so I just recently took 18 months. Um, not my first sobriety date. I've had a lot of fucking sobriety dates, um, but this is the longest that I've had. Um, and God willing, I'll stay sober tonight and again tomorrow. Um, I used to come to this meeting a lot. I've been really involved in HA the past like two years or so. And recently I've been getting involved in NA. Um, I'm finishing my AA steps right now, but then eventually I want to um, start working the NA steps. Um, when I first got into the rooms, I was really against AA. Um, alcohol wasn't really my thing. I was just a drug addict and I had a really hard time replacing alcohol with drugs in the big book and in the steps. Um, and now I've just come to the point to realize that it's all the same. It doesn't matter if it's alcohol, pills, heroin, meth, whatever. It's all just a substance that takes over our lives and is an addiction. Um, so if you're new and you're struggling with that, um, like I said, um, it, or sorry, HA works out of the big book. Um, so does CA, um, but there is the NA program and it's just a different version of steps, but the steps are the same. Um, so I want to focus more on the solution with my share, but just to kind of get a background of where I'm from. Um, I'm from St. Louis. Um, and growing up, I just never really felt like I belonged anywhere. Um, I was an only child and just kind of felt like left out and just uh, didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere. Didn't really get along with my parents that well. Um, and then when I was 12, I got really depressed and started cutting. And that was like the first addiction that I really had was self-injuring. Um, it was a way to just kind of feel control and punish myself. And um, so I continued that for a few years. Um, and then when I was 15, um, like I said, I wasn't really getting along with my parents and like AOL was big at the time, like those AIM chat rooms. Um, so I'd like find people to talk to and I found an older guy I started talking to. Um, I didn't know at the time he was a sex offender. Um, so looking back, he was doing like the whole grooming process. Um, so we hung out like three or four times. That was the first time I actually drank was with him. Um, he had a bottle of Bacardi and I remember I took like a little sip of it and I thought it was disgusting and I was like, I'm not drinking anymore. And then he's like, no, you need to take like a bigger gulp of it and you'll feel it. Um, so I took like a big swig of it and I remember like instantly I just felt this like relief like take over me and it was the same feeling I had when I was cutting just like that instant um, just like peace I kind of felt in myself and obviously it's like just short term it wasn't real but at the time that was kind of felt what I needed um, so started drinking um, and it was, it was just really fucked up. He was like teaching me how to cut myself better and it was just like super unhealthy, but like didn't realize it at the time, obviously. Um, and then on like the fourth time we hung out, he ended up raping me and it was like really violent. Um, and then as he was like driving uh, me home, he was like threatening to hurt me and my family if I told anybody. Um, and I remember he dropped me off and I was standing in my driveway and like the whole world looked different. Like my house looked different, the neighbor's house looked different, the moon looked different. Um, and ever since that moment, like I've just looked at life a different way since then. Um, I was really traumatized after that. So I started drinking a lot after that, started cutting a lot and just started getting really out of control. Um, I had a group of friends that I was partying with and a lot of them drank like me. 
Um, but I had already noticed that I had some kind of like alcoholic behaviors. I didn't know that's what it was, but different behaviors. Like I would drink by myself a lot, um, like even before the pregame. And then I would drink by myself during the week when like usually it was just parties on weekends. I'd go out with friends um, and I always drank a lot more than everyone else. Um, graduated high school. I didn't really get into drugs until I was 18, 19. Um, that was when I went to treatment for the first time. Um, didn't take it seriously. Didn't want to get sober. Wasn't into it. Um, and then I began like a two-year crack in like heroin addiction. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so just because it's an HA meeting for the sake of heroin. So I sniffed it the first like two years. And um, one of my like bottoms with heroin was I was never going to shoot it. Like I was super against needles. And I got like lightheaded anytime I got blood drawn. So I just didn't think I'd do it. And the boyfriend I was with like kept telling me you need to shoot it. It's a better high. Like whatever. Um, and finally one day I was just like, fuck it, I don't care, do it. And um, the first time he shot me up was obviously like way different than snorting it and I never wanted to go back after that. Um, and so at that point I was actually in college, I was doing pretty well, school was good for me because I was able to function during the day um, and then I just get really fucked up at night. Um, and then after like six months of shooting, um, my cousin died from a heroin overdose and it, it was really like a suicide because she was trying to die. And um, I remember I was with uh, my aunt, we were like holding her body before she was gonna get cremated. And my aunt made me promise on her dead body I'd never do drugs again. And I just knew that was something that I couldn't do. And so I looked at her and I was like, I can't promise you I don't do drugs, but I promise you I'll never do heroin or any opiates again. Um, and we were like holding our hands and prayed. And that is the only promise I've ever fucking kept. I made a lot of promises to people that I'd get sober. This was the last time in treatment. I'll go to meetings, like made all these promises. And that's the only one that I've ever been able to keep. Um, and so I haven't done heroin since then. And that was like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Obviously I've done other shit since then. Um, but that is something that I've been able to swear off. Um, I graduated college um, with a bachelor's in psychology and then after that, that was when I really started using a lot because I had all this free time and just didn't know what I was doing with my life. Um, and that was when my addiction started getting really bad. Um, in and out of jail a lot. I remember every time I was in uh, jail, I'd call my dad and he's like, this is the last time I'm bailing you out, like I'm done. And then I'd fucking call him a few weeks later and he'd do it again. Um, I started totaling cars because uh, I got really an air duster for a while. It was a weird addiction, but I'd fucking do it while driving and like black out and have a seizure and wake up and I was like in front of a light pole. And um, so I'd wrecked a lot of cars, so I was stuck riding the Metro for like three years and that just fueled my addiction even more because there were always dealers around the Metro and like the security didn't give a fuck as long as you weren't like causing scenes or ODing or anything, they didn't care. So that just further fed it. Um, and so again, I started going in and out of treatment a lot. Um, I've been in treatment 33 times. And I don't say that to like show off or cause it's cool. It's because like I fucking did it a lot and I just couldn't stay sober. Um, and a lot of those times it wasn't even for substance abuse. It was for like mental health and trauma um, or I'd like go to the psych ward cause I was either 5150 or just like really suicidal and admitted myself. Um, I tried wilderness therapy once that didn't work. Um, you know, different residential programs across the country, IOP, PHP, all that. It just never really worked. 
Um, I had a really hard time with meetings because, again, I just felt like I didn't really fit in with AA. Um, in St. Louis, AA, it's a lot of older white men. Um, so I didn't relate to that. And then the NA meetings are all in the city and like people are dealing and getting high there and it's not serious and there's not like CAHA other programs. Um, so I was really blessed when I came here of like what a strong recovery community there is in um, Southern California in general and how many meetings there are. Um, so that's something I had while I was here. Um, eventually, um, when I was I don't know, like 25 or so, my addiction was just really bad. Um, my dad and my therapist did an intervention on me, and that was the first time my dad like really set his foot down. Um, he was gonna make me go back to wilderness therapy because it's like super fucking extreme. They literally drop you in like the middle of the woods. Um, you have to like build your own shelter. You like pack up everything you have in the day, hike, um, and I was like, fuck that, I'm not doing wilderness therapy again. Um, so my dad told me he was going to cut off my cell phone and change the locks on my condo that he owned if I didn't go. And um, I like stormed out of the office and I remember I was on the phone with my dealer, like trying to get something. And then my phone disconnected and it was Verizon telling me that my phone was shut off. And then I was like, okay, now I like really know I'm fucked. And so, um, I took the metro because it was downtown back to my condo and I'm just like panicking like don't know what to do um, ran into a guy on the street um, basically offered to prostitute myself because I just had no self-respect at that point I knew I was fucked I needed money I wanted to get high um, so he came in my condo long story short he ended up pulling a gun on me started asking for all my money um, like pistol whipping me, just fucking, um, my phone was shut off, um, so he just, like, kept telling me no one gave a shit about me, I didn't have anyone to call, whatever. Um, he threatened to tie me up, um, because he was gonna have other people come over and I guess, like, pimp me out for money or try to get money from me. Um, I started screaming and then a neighbor heard and called the cops, um, and then when the neighbor came out, he got freaked out and left. Um, so that had like kind of fucked me up too. And that's when I moved to California. Um, and again, started getting back into the treatment shuffle. Um, I would do really well when I was in treatment. Like I would go to groups and participate. I'd open up in sessions. Um, but still I just, once I got out of treatment, like once I left that structured environment, I wasn't able to stay sober because I just didn't know how to do it on my own. Um, and then I remember the first time I hit 90 days sober, it was like on my 90 day, um, I had this like really detailed vision of being molested when I was younger. And it was something that I never, I always kind of thought but never really processed. And that's something like I'm still working through today. Um, and so for someone like me, I have like a lot of mental health issues and that like goes with my sobriety too. Um, so like meetings and doing step work and working with a sponsor and being of service, like all of those things have really helped. But like I also need to see like a psychiatrist, like monthly, a therapist weekly. Um, and so if you're like someone that has mental health issues, I'd recommend like making sure you're focusing on that too in addition to the program. Um, I eventually got a year sober at one point and I was doing really well. I was house managing, working in treatment. Um, and it was kind of just like a few factors that led up to my relapse. Um, 
but that relapse I had after a year was the worst relapse I've ever had. So, and I thought after having a year sober, I'd like be able to better manage it. Um, but it, it was worse after that than it had ever been before. Again, just in and out of treatment. Um, so kind of talking about this last time. So I had um, three months sober from meth. Well, like everything, but I was lastly doing meth. And I smoked weed for one day. And I got caught and I told my sponsor about it and she told me I had to restart my time. And like, I was pissed because I was like, I have three months, like I smoked weed for one day, it's not a drug, whatever. And um, she kept telling me it counted as a relapse and I had to restart my time. And for the first time, I was really willing to just listen to somebody else and realize like my way of thinking didn't work, I had to do something differently. Um, and so I restarted my time from that. Um, and so my 18 months sober, because again, it's just like from one day smoking weed, <laughs> but um, still counts. Um, so I worked with a sponsor, started getting into the steps. This last time of step work, I did the BBA. It's the Big Book Awakening. I really recommend it for anyone who's trying to work steps, especially if you already have experience with AA. Um, it really breaks down the Big Book into detail and kind of turns everything into a question. Um, and because the big book was written in the 1930s, it's kind of outdated a little bit in some ways. So the BBA really helps um, explain some of the terms that you may not understand if it's not current. Um, and again, just breaks it down. So that really helped. Um, I, like I said, I was going to meetings. I was doing that, meeting with a sponsor. Um, but I was still just really depressed and having a lot of PTSD symptoms like nightmares and flashbacks. And so um, when I was nine months sober, I got really suicidal. And I knew I didn't want to get high, but I knew I just like couldn't live the way I was living anymore. So I went to a mental health treatment center for uh, two weeks. Um, well, I forgot to mention I had started graduate school um, to get my master's in social work a little bit before that. Um, uh, so I just did the two weeks so I could still stay in school. And it was really hard to go to treatment and not get loaded before because I never gone to treatment sober and I figured like my life's already fucked up like I might as well just get high one more time and enjoy it. Um, and I just realized like my life was already so bad and I knew if I get high, like if I got high, I wouldn't go to treatment. I would just keep getting loaded. Um, so I went there sober, um, completed that. And then I realized um, I was on the wrong medication and that was part of like why I was feeling really bad. And so again, if you have like the mental health issues, like make sure you're on the right meds and like seeing a psychiatrist and everything. Um, so I got out of there, I started, so I had finished my steps like shortly after that and like right after I finished the steps, I got a new sponsor and started reworking the steps. Um, so the steps are a lifelong process. So even after you finish all 12, um, it doesn't mean you're just set for life. Um, eventually you have to rework the steps because different things come up, you have different life experiences. It's always good to rework the steps. Um, so I was doing that, I graduated school in May and um, a huge reason why I was able to graduate was because I was sober and I was clear-headed. Um, I remember when I first started school, which was like two or two and a half years ago, I was smoking a lot of meth. And um, I remember I'd have like a 9 a.m. class and I'd get my meth at like two, like in the afternoon, let's say. I'd be smoking all night and then be like 8.30 in the morning. And I was like, okay, I have a half hour till class. And then it was 8.45 and then 8.50 and then it was nine o'clock. 
And, like, I literally couldn't take the pipe out of my mouth to just fucking go to class, even though I had been smoking for over, like, 12 hours. And that was just, like, the insanity of it, that the pipe was literally glued to my mouth, glued to my hand, and, like, I could not stop, like, regardless. And, um, so I graduated, and then I just really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so I started working in treatment, um, back in June. Um, and it's really helped my sobriety a lot. I've heard from a lot of people that you can't use working in treatment as your sobriety. You still have to go to meetings and do your own program, but it's helped me a lot um, as far as reminding me what I don't want to go back to and being able to see it from another perspective, how that's going. Um, I try to be of service a lot, so I'm doing panels, I'm trying to pick up sponsees. If anyone's looking for a sponsor, I'd love to talk to you after the meeting. Um, recently, I um, just today, I applied to be a CASA volunteer, which is like a court-appointed special advocate for like abused children. Um, and it's been really frustrating because one of their requirements is if you're in recovery, you have to have five years sober. And within a five-year period, you can't have any charges um, on your record. Um, so that was frustrating for me because I have charges like within the past five years and obviously I don't have the five years sober. Um, and for me having 18 months is like a fucking miracle. Like that's a lot of time to me. So it's frustrating when like five years that's just, I think that's like asking too much, but whatever. Um, but obviously they want somebody that's like stable and able to provide for them. Um, so I wrote like a letter to them of like why I felt like I was qualified. I was like honest about my charges, about my sobriety, um, and said I'd be willing to get like letters of recommendation, that I could drug test, that I could do anything for it. Um, so that I'll find out in the next week or so if I got it. Um, and with this, I've been kind of just trusting God with it, that this is something that I want and I know I have good intentions behind it, but if it's not meant to work out, then it's not going to, and I can apply when I have more time. Um, but that's part of trying to be rigorously, rigorously honest, like this program talks about, is just being honest with time and everything. Um, and so in working the steps, um, specifically the big book talks about the physical allergy. Um, so what the allergy is, it um, compares to somebody that has like a peanut allergy. So if they eat anything with peanuts, then they break out in hives and have some kind of reaction to it. Um, so with addicts and alcoholics, um, if you're a true addict or alcoholic, you have that physical allergy. So once you put that substance in your body, again, whatever it is, alcohol, pills, weed, whatever, um, that allergy comes out and you get the mental obsession and the physical craving with it. So once I put something in my body, I cannot stop using. And once I start using, I don't know when I'm going to stop. I don't know how much I'm going to do and I don't know what's going to happen after it. Um, one of the best coping skills that's really helped me is being able to play out the tape. So thinking if I get high, what's going to happen after that? So what's going to happen that night? What's going to happen the next morning? Um, when I think about it, it's I'm going to lose my relationship, lose my job, have to restart my time, probably go to jail or some other shit's going to happen. Um, and so that's really helped me as being um, as far as being able to play that out. Um, so I want to talk about my experience with the steps for a little bit. So step one is all about powerlessness and unmanageability. Um, AA says powerless over alcohol, but again, you can replace it with any substance. Um, and again, for me, like I was just saying with the physical allergy, it means I can't put anything in my body. 
Um, for a long time, I had a really hard time with weed because um, that was something that helped my anxiety. I didn't think it was a drug. I had a really hard time getting um, giving that up. I tried marijuana maintenance a lot, like just smoking weed and going to meetings that never worked. Um, it would maybe work for like a few days or a few weeks, um, but eventually I was doing meth or some other drug. Um, or if I was able to just smoke weed in the beginning, it was still, I had like a blunt rolled in the morning, smoking all day, smoking at night, um, still just like completely unmanageable and having to be high like all day to just function. Um, so being able to accept that, that I can't do anything. Um, steps two and three are all about relating to a higher power. Um, it's something I still kind of struggle with a little bit. Um, but it's something that as having more time, I've been able to connect with it. So my higher power is more mother nature kind of concept. Um, so I feel most connected to my higher power in nature. Like if I'm hiking at the beach, at the park, whatever it is, I have a hard time, um, just praying and meditating inside. I say God sometimes when talking about it, just because it's easy, easier. Um, God can also be good orderly direction. Um, there's another one on like one of these plaques. I can't think of what it is. What? Group of drunks. Group of drunks. Yeah. So there's like a lot of acronyms for God. Um, so just find whatever works for you. Um, again, this is a spiritual, not religious program. So, um, AA, NA, whatever, it's not associated with any religion. It's just a spiritual concept. Um, and then prayer and meditation is important too to check with that. Um, also part of my higher power, I just think of a karma um, kind of concept that if I do the right thing, I treat other people with respect, I do the right thing, then good things will happen to me. Um, and so that's another way of just acting out in God's will. Part of that too is being of service and doing things I don't necessarily want to do. So if somebody asks me to do something, um, whether it's like go to their house to help them with something, if somebody asks me to go to a meeting, go to a panel, um, even if I don't feel like it, uh, maybe I just want to stay at home or maybe I've had a long day at work and don't feel like doing anything, um, it's part of my job to just be a good friend, be of service and do it regardless of how I feel. Um, and service work is just huge in this program too. If you're new, I definitely recommend getting a commitment. It really helps with going to meetings. Um, there were a lot of times that I didn't want to go to a meeting, but I had to because I had a commitment. Um, and then if I skipped the meeting, I felt like shit because I knew I was letting people down and they were expecting me. <laughs> I'm laughing because there are a few meetings I skipped. Um, so commitments are huge. It really helps a lot. Um, so the fourth step is about a moral inventory. So your resentments. Um, so resentments or anything that you've held on to that you've been bitter about that makes you angry that you have negative feelings towards um, So you write it all down and then the really important part with the resentments is you look at your part in it and generally every resentment you have you have a part in it um, So sometimes I'd have like a resentment towards my family or friends for like not giving me money or not giving me something I needed um, and really my part was that I was a drug addict. I used them, I manipulated them, they didn't trust me, so they had reason not to give in for that. Um, so something that was told to me, um, and so this is my personal experience and my opinion, um, but so for instances um, like abuse or rape where it's something that was done to you that you didn't necessarily have a part in, um, what I learned is that the way to describe your part in it was that you held on to it for longer than you should and you let it control your life. 
Um, I feel like as far as looking at it as like I put myself in that situation, I was fucked up, um, that kind of thinking, I feel like that's kind of victim blaming and I feel like that's more unhealthy to think like that. Um, so again, just looking at it as something you've held on to. Um, but again, that's my personal opinion and that's how I've taken it. Um, so that's just what worked for me. The fourth step also includes a fear inventory. So that's looking at more materialistic fears like spiders, heights, um, and then looking at internal fears too, like fear of abandonment or rejection. And then there's also a sex inventory. Um, so this is all part of the fourth step. Um, the sex inventory, your sponsor will have you do it different ways. Um, it may just be relationships, especially if you've had like a lot of one night stands like I did or people that weren't really impactful, just focusing on that. Um, and then the fifth step is really important because you're going over your fourth step with somebody else. So you're taking all those secrets, all those things that you've held on to for so long and sharing it with another al alcoholic or addict that's in the program that can relate to that. Um, so even doing a fourth step is great, but again, you need to share it with someone else just like you don't wanna work the steps on your own. Um, six and seven is looking at character defects. Um, so I have a lot of character defects. I'm manipulative, I'm selfish, um, I don't think about other people. And now that I'm in sobriety, those things, um, like being selfish, manipulative, it's a lot less, but it's still there, so I have to check myself with that. Um, but being aware of that um, as well. Step eight, making a list of all the amends that you have to make. Um, so people talk a lot about the fourth step, that you should be scared of the fourth step. Really, if anything, you should be scared of the eighth and ninth step, because that's when you really have to own all your shit to somebody, apologize for all the fucked up things you did, and then hear what they have to say. Um, so with the ninth step, overall, I've had a pretty good experience with making amends. Um, I've reached out to a lot of people, um, family, old friends, old sponsors, people in the program. Um, I actually had frequent uh, run-ins with um, a certain county of cops back home and ended up writing a letter to them and made amends. Um, and most people were like really receptive of it. Like they appreciated me reaching out. They said they didn't have any hard feelings. They just let it go. Um, like I said, mostly it was a good experience. Um, there was one person who was an old sponsor. She didn't want to hear from me. Um, and so I just had to let that go. There was also another treatment center I wanted to make amends to that I reached out and tried calling. He didn't call me back. Um, and so with those ones, I just had to let it go. Um, because really the amends process is for you. It's not for the other person. And I know that I tried and made the effort to make amends. Um, but sometimes people just aren't willing if we really damage those relationships. And that's something we have to respect. Um, also what I learned with working the amends step is that when you're making amends, tying in your character defects with that. So when you, um, let's say you're apologizing for something that you did, um, like, oh, I'm sorry that I stole money for you to get drugs. Looking at the character defect of that, like I was being selfish in my addiction, I didn't think of how it was affecting you. Um, so things like that, if that makes sense. So being able to look at your character defects while you're making amends. Um, and what I didn't know in the beginning is that making amends isn't just saying you're sorry. It's not just apologizing and then kind of dropping it. Um, a big part of amends is making a living amends going forward. So showing someone that you're actively doing things different to not repeat the same mistakes. 
Um, and sometimes like if the person is, um, is dead or you just have no contact with them, that's just making a living amends with them. Again, I'm just trying to do things different. Um, so step 10 is taking a personal inventory. So that's something I do every night. I have an app on my phone that makes it really easy. Um, and ask you questions like, were you selfish or dishonest? Did you think of what you could do for others? Were you kind and loving towards all? Did you pray and meditate? Um, it's basically just like a daily check-in to see if you helped anybody else and if you have any resentments or any behavior that you did during the day to make up for it. Um, the purpose of step 10 is, um, there's a few reasons, so on again, it's to see if you connected with your higher power. It's to see if you reached out to someone to be of service and help somebody else in the program. And it's also so that you can be aware if you did harm someone, maybe um, intentional or intentional, then you can reach it out to that person and make amends right away. Um, ideally, you would do it in the moment or as soon as it happened. Um, but again, with reflecting um, on it in the 10th step, then you're able to make amends right away instead of holding on to it. Um, step 11, again, is just connecting with higher power in the prayer and meditation. Um, notice that it specifically says with God as we understood him, and that's underlined because, again, it's your own concept of a higher power. So, again, it doesn't have to be God. It's not tied to Christianity. Um, it's just whatever your concept of a higher power is. And then step 12, um, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So the purpose of step 12 is really all about service and giving back. Um, they say in every meeting that the newcomer is the most important meeting, the most important member of every meeting because we can only keep what we have by giving it away. Um, so trying to reach out to that person that doesn't have that much time, that maybe just relapsed and is coming back. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean sponsorship, that's part of it, but it's just reaching out to somebody. Um, and to reach out and be a service to someone in the program, you don't have to have a lot of time for that. Even if you just have 30 days, 60 days, um, shit, sometimes if you only have a week for that person that's getting high that can't fucking stop for like 24 hours, like that seven days, that 30 days will mean a lot to somebody. So like remembering that you have something to offer, even if you don't have that much time, because you can still offer something. Um, that was perfect timing. Um, so all the steps are obviously really important. Step one, um, they say is kind of the most important because um, that's kind of what leads to all the others. And again, once you admit that powerlessness, then you're stopping that cycle of addiction. Um, once you get really comfortable with the steps, I recommend um, going into the traditions. Um, the one that sticks out to me the most is number three. The only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Um, so it doesn't mean that you have to be sober when you get here. Um, I remember I went to meetings loaded a lot, specifically here. I remember I'd get high in the bathroom, show up like 20 minutes late. Nobody ever kicked me out. Nobody ever talked shit. People would come up to me after the meeting and they were like, hey, do you need anything? Are you okay? And that's like what this program's about. So just having the desire. Um, the last thing I want to touch on really quick before I end. So um, what working the program or being in the program, working the steps, working with the sponsor and everything, um, all of that has relieved me of the obsession to use and to drink. So before I was constantly thinking of getting high, getting money, um, when my next fix was gonna be, like literally obsessing on it all day long. Um, and working the program has helped relieve me of that obsession. Um, but honestly, for me personally, the desire to use hasn't completely gone away. 
Um, there are still times when I do think of getting high, um, but when I think of getting high, it's very, it's a passing thought. It's not something I put a lot of effort into. Um, and when that happens, I have to check myself and think like, okay, is something bothering me? Did something just happen? Um, did I pray and meditate today? So like really being able to check myself. Um, and for some people that desire doesn't go away and that's okay as long as you just take the right steps of what to do if you feel like getting high. Um, especially reaching out to somebody. If I've had those temptations to get high, telling myself right away I reach out to somebody. Um, so even though um, that desire to use may still be there, you can lose that obsession. You can get that freedom of thought from wanting to use. Um, and that's about it, so thanks for letting me share.